We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. And by Sean Sue. Also great to be back. And today my guests are going to be picking some of their top stories from here in Taiwan for, well, 2023. So we'll jump straight in with the biggest story overall for this year or last year, depending when you're listening to this said show. And I think I may have some idea as to what that's going to be. Because, Michael, could it have something to do with a name brand hotel in Taipei? A meeting... And events at the meeting that one could have put to a Fleetwood Mac song. Well, if you're a political junkie like I think everybody else is here, then yes, there's no question that the hotel meeting at the Hyatt between Ke Wenzhe, Ho Yoi, and Terry Go and Mind Joe had to be the highlight of the year. Uh, I, I, I've come to feel that it was perhaps embarrassing, but actually a positive development for Taiwan's democracy. Terry Goh is a chaos agent, and that's why the entire meeting was so quickly thrown together and, and looked so chaotic. But pushed back and tried to make things transparent, which is why it was all done in public instead of being done in secret meeting rooms like the previous deal that had been brokered. And I think that this was a positive thing. I think that the Ke understood that the Taiwanese public would not accept some kind of grand closed room deal uh, to, to set up a two-way race in the election. Uh, so after the initial shock wore off, I've taken a more positive view of this uh, rather curious event. And how many times did you watch it? Did you watch it live? Did you watch it again in repeat? And did you wish there was play-by-play? Only if Gavin Phipps could have been doing the the play-by-play. I I did watch it live, and I did go back from time to time to treasure certain episodes in it which were uh, of particular interest. Uh, Also, just looking at Maing Joe sitting there silently glowering was, I thought, symbolic of his sidelining in mainstream society. Uh, Although we can see that through the pick of the VP candidate immediately afterwards, that his power, his uncanny power inside the KMT remains very strong. And if you had to sum it up as a, a step backwards for Taiwan politics or a step forwards for Taiwan politics, where would you put the infamous hotel meeting? I think it was a step forward. I think that's counterintuitive, but the transparency, however ugly it was, was a good thing. And Sean, the infamous hotel meeting. I think Ko was learning from a singular meeting with Zhu Ho and, and Ma, um, you know, it, when earlier when they decided to use very specifically uh, chosen time frames um, and, and for specific polls and all this other thing uh, displaying that Ko really didn't understand um, or didn't remember 
anything from his statistics classes in his youth or college days. And therefore, that's my theory on why he decided to just enforce this open, transparent meeting. Had he, you know, been put into a room again alone with, you know, these three KMT heads, he probably would have been outmaneuvered again. Uh, I think uh, the other thing that came across my mind was I really wondered what Ma was thinking during that meeting. Because yes, the glowering, I wonder what he was thinking in his head, like, this isn't going so well. Well, you know, how 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 did he... Because I think from his point of view, he could see how easily it was that things were crashing down. Uh, if Ke had accepted becoming a VP candidate for a Hoyoyi, then yeah, I think the KMT might have had it in the back. But it all fell apart. Even worse, um, the the aftermath of it, uh, the, the KMT spokesperson, the TPP spokeswoman, claiming that the KMT spokesman uh, uh, touched her in ways that were inappropriate while they were fighting over the mic, among other things. The whole thing was just an utter mess. Uh, I think the biggest winner out of this was definitely the DPP. <laughs> Even Go uh, excused himself shortly after the meeting. The most positive thing he did for all parties, I, I think, was to pull out. But I also felt bad for his VP candidate because uh, she gave up her U.S. citizenship, which she'll never get back, by the way, um, and just for a, a presidential run that didn't even formally run, maybe like two months, and then Go excused himself and said after this meeting, well, he's no longer running. Uh, wow, everyone got a got a piece of uh, something that night. Sean, I mean, do you think that Terry Gore pulling out of the race shortly after had something to do with the meeting? Uh, I, I think it had more repercussions, um, especially I don't think China was very happy uh, that he was running because uh, he would have split the vote even further. Um, indeed, uh, looking at polls uh, after Go left, uh, the KMT had a noticeable boost in, in you know, support. So I do think that, uh, yeah, there was a lot of pressure for him to go. And Michael, do you think other political parties will be holding such meetings in hotels, or do you think they'll be behind closed doors in secret venues? I think it's at a precedent. Probably they will try to avoid hotels in the future. Maybe we'll see them at Huashan or something like that. Uh, a cultural center might be more appropriate for another try. But I don't think that they can put things behind closed doors and broker deals privately uh, and get the trust of the Taiwanese people. I do think there's going to be way more uh, agreements prior in future meetings like this, so nobody embarrasses themselves. It was described by some pundits as a clown show, given how they argued with each other, talked over each other. Uh, it just made both side, uh, both the TPP and the KMT look utterly chaotic. I feel like they could have easily set some ground rules earlier in detail and then had uh, better moderators and what have you to organize the whole thing. So it wouldn't look like so much passive aggressiveness in their messages uh, against each other. And it was just, uh, I mean, there's a reason why it became a meme. Um, so many parts of it of the became a meme in Taiwanese social media. Uh, I, I really feel that in some ways this is great for Taiwan and that we're so our, our Taiwan politics is so exciting. But this is no better than, I think, you know, those legislative fights where people throw lunchboxes at each other because it just ended up feeling just as 
sad. Uh, on the bright side, um, I do think, yeah, indeed, as uh, Michael said, we're going to have more of these more transparent meetings because closed-door meetings don't work. But yeah, there's definitely going to be more moderation. I'd like to also bring up this has some shades. It reminds me, me of the, twin, the twin, 2000 and the 2004 uh, elections where, you know, um, against the DPP, the KMT tried to form coalitions or the Pam Blues tried to form coalitions. And it seems like after 20 years, they haven't learned how to do it better. Yeah, I very much agree with that. There's What we see over the long term is that the Pan Blues are always splitting off into different parties. The TSU, the PFP, the new party even going further back. And they really have difficulty keeping everybody under their big tent. Um, In contrast, the DBP is also a big tent party, as is the case in almost every two-party democracy. But they are better at having giant dust-ups like the high lie confrontation uh, a few years ago, and then most of the time coming back together and presenting a unified front when it comes to the actual election. So it's a, their base may be a little bit smaller, but I think it, that these two factors are what make them so equal uh, hitherto in Taiwanese politics. Now, that was the biggest story of the year. And, of course, it was political. But, Sean, what about the, the non-hotel meeting political story of the year? I, I feel that it could be two things. Uh, one, I feel that Ho Yi definitely looked like he was less in control of his presidential campaign. And Ma definitely shone through a lot. But the other one that really... Uh, got me was how Bonnie Glazer kept getting used by the TPP and KMT because uh, they kept saying that she was they said that they had her endorsement you know in one way or another and then it led to both times in one year Glazer protesting on social media telling you know Ko and Ho to not you know pretend that she endorsed them uh, and the funny part was their reaction I think uh, you know both si- both times they said oh it was a misunderstanding or they said Bonnie Glazer was flustered or you know secretly she still supports me but in the case of Ho yeah it was just a cultural misunderstanding Understanding. Then Co came in and, and and also said something similar recently, just a few days ago. Uh, wow! Uh, I think this really represents that um, both parties, actually all parties in Taiwan, really, really, uh, and really think it's important to give the public the impression that they have U.S. support or some U.S. support, because as everyone knows, in Taiwan, when choosing a president, foreign relations is really important, and having one of our most important allies uh, uh, liking us or liking our candidates has become front and center. Uh, And I think that might be one of the biggest uh, uh, non-hotel stories of the year. (laughs) But of course, Sean, the KMT did come out and say, it's only Bonnie Glazer. Only about 23,000 people know who she is. And the rest of Taiwan doesn't care. So it's no biggie. 
<laughs> we all know that's just downplaying. You know, Glazer has long been a big voice for Taiwan, actually more for the U.S. interests. But, you know, uh, in the past, when, you know, someone from the U.S. said something positive about Taiwan or in defense of Taiwan in some factor or another, uh, in Taiwan news and media, it's always been in the front page and cover. So uh, I, I doubt, I think they're just downplaying it. I, I honestly think this whole thing has been really, I feel bad for Glazer. I know that not everyone agrees with her. Sometimes I don't myself. But to just, I mean, it's almost a meme now also, you know, saying, oh, Bonnie Glazer endorses this. Glazer endorses that sometimes as a joke because it's just a little bit, I think, too desperate to do this. At the same time, then insulting her after she came out and said, hey, I didn't. You shouldn't use my name without your permission, without my permission. And yeah, I think consent is a very important thing that sometimes it seems like Taiwan's still learning. And Michael, the Bonnie Glazer incidents. I think Sean is right that the views of the U.S. on Taiwan and the candidates in elections are much more important than they would appear to be based on how much actual media coverage is given to this issue. We can remember back in 2012 when Tsai Ing-wen was running for the first time that a there was another sort of proxy U.S. view in a former State Department official who uh, came out and seemed to be suggesting that Tsai wasn't ready, and people took that as the view of the Obama administration. And some Tsai reporters blame all this for her losing. I'm not really sure that was the case because mind Joe kind of had the biggest political brand that's ever been in Taiwan, and I think Tsai Ing-wen was still learning how to be a retail politician at that point. But there's no question that the views of the U.S. were important, and because the U.S. government tries pretty hard not to obviously take sides, various proxies come forward, and this time around it seems to be Bonnie Glazer. Uh What's been kind of interesting to me is that some listeners may be aware that Bonnie Glazer and two other U.S. experts on China and Taiwan named Jessica Chen Weiss and Tom Christensen, uh, the three of them recently wrote an article on foreign policy uh, suggesting, among other things, that Taiwan needed to give assurances to China, uh, particularly uh, the DPP should remove the Taiwan independence plank and Taiwan should stop teaching so much Taiwanese history in the textbooks. And that has had an interesting afterlife because I think that the Ho campaign and the Blues are now careful not to you know, misrepresent Glazer as having endorsed him as a candidate. But all over the blue media, there are scholars and pundits and even the campaigns are bringing up the fact that these assurances or something like them dovetail with the KMT's own policy. So they're they're not and not an endorsement of the candidate, but she's still being used to endorse the key policy position on China. 
And I think that's pretty significant. And that has had ripple effects. Uh, Alicia O oh from uh, Taipei First Girls School has recently made the news as a teacher for complaining about the quote-unquote desensitization of history. Because in that article, uh, Glazer had mentioned that you know Taiwan should also continue its you know teaching of chi- uh, Chinese history and and not de-emphasizing it, which of course sparked a lot of backlash, uh, especially on Taiwan Twitter and social media. I think um, people thought that maybe Glazer had de-emphasized uh, the reality that Taiwan is a nation, whether you believe it's de facto, de jure, whatever. But uh, they also felt that it's kind of wrong to start dictating what goes in our history textbooks per se. But of course, this again, as you know, Michael said, this falls directly into what KMT interests, which is, of course, uh, part of their platform, and that is a little bit of ethno-nationalism, where Han history is tied with ROC and so on and so forth. So yeah, of course, when they have the chance, they're going to bring out what they can and say, like, yes, this is what the U.S. wants, but you know, that is a long tradition in Taiwan politics where everyone pretends they know what our allies and foreign friends are actually saying, and they always have their own interpretation of it. And moving on now, the top foreign affairs story from here in Taiwan this year. And Michael, this also involves an American. Yes, I feel like we're overweighting the United States, but uh, my pick for this story, and I think Sean agreed as well, was the Ty McCarthy meeting at the Reagan Library. Uh, That was significant because, of course, uh, the previous year, Nancy Pelosi had come to Taiwan, and the result was some pretty serious military pressure on Taiwan by China. Uh, at the time, McCarthy had said that he wanted to meet with he – w- he was not speaker yet at that time, but he said that he would meet with uh, Tsai. Eventually, they brokered a kind of compromise where he, they met in the U.S. instead of Taiwan, uh, which showed – I think gave McCarthy the, the breathing room that he needed – uh, because he wasn't backing down in the face of U.S. pressure. Uh, I have some questions about the, the on the Thai side, whether that was so wise. But in any event, uh, th- they met. The Speaker of the U.S., for those who don't know, House for the in the U.S., for those who don't know, is w- one of the heads of the three branches of government. So it's extremely significant to see the U.S., and unusual to see the U.S. Congress taking a major role in a foreign policy issue like Taiwan. In fact, the last time they did this to the extent that they're doing it now is arguably when they passed the Taiwan Relations Act to the dismay of the executive branch back in the late 1970s. So Taiwan is special in American foreign policy in the interplay between the executive and the legislative branch. And that's one of the reasons why that meeting was so important. And Sean, you agree here. Yeah, I totally. Uh, I feel that there was so so much significance in this meeting. Um, first of all, the fact that it, it, there was bipartisan support for this meeting. Completely. Yeah, completely. Both Democrats and Republicans were, I mean, you know, they're always fighting in the U.S. It's been, people have described it as some of the biggest divides in recent memory, yet we're looking at both sides were totally happy that Ty visited. I feel that if this could be somehow normal, to have yearly or bi year like you know bi yearly Taiwan presidents going to the US having meetings with some of the top officials in the US would be amazing. The second thing I think was um 
it is the most senior U.S. figure to meet a Taiwanese leader in U.S. soil in many decades. For for many of the youth in Taiwan, this is the first time they've ever seen something like this. So it was a big win for Tsai and the DPP, but most importantly, I think it was a big win for Taiwan to have this happen. Yeah, it would have been great if McCarthy could visit Taiwan, uh, but I do think uh, China's bluster and what have you about potential war and so forth and so on has made an impact. I think... China did get a small win in that some might m- interpret this as McCarthy backing down a little bit. However, I also feel that it also made a lot of countries very aware or people very aware that China was so aggressive uh, uh, on this front. And it doesn't make China look like the good guy either way. Uh, and there was security implications because, um, you know, Thai emphasis the needs to speed up arm de- deliveries. Uh, there was a coherent, finally coherent message on deterrence. So after this, the United States definitely came out on the importance of deterrence uh, of China. The fear being that Xi Jinping might have a bubble, just like many other uh, authoritarian dictators have in the past. So by making it very public uh, about U.S. support, for uh, deterrence against uh, uh, an aggressive, unprovoked Chinese invasion, I think was really good for world security because um, it might have gone through his bubble. And I do know, yeah, China responded with more military activities and sanctions and so forth. But I feel like the domestic impact on Taiwan shows that, hey, uh, we have a government that is making inroads in foreign relations around the world. So that's why it, too, is my top foreign relations story. Now, Michael, I'm going to play the devil's advocate or poo-poo this one, if I may say that, because, of course, Mr McCarthy didn't stick around for very long. That's true, but congressional attention has uh, continued, and the Congress has set up a select committee on China in particular, which I believe is is partly related to this. And yes, Mr McCarthy uh, did leave office fairly soon after that. But we didn't know that at the time that that was going to happen. He could have had a long and and uh, vigorous tenure. I do want to emphasize what Sean was just saying, it, that it's so rare, especially right now in the U.S., for there to be an issue like Taiwan where there is complete bipartisan agreement. Uh, the only other case that I can think of, and it really isn't at that level at this point because is the situation in Israel to a certain extent. Uh, but but the, even that is there's not as much consensus as there is on this. Um, it, it's risky for the US, for Taiwan because if Taiwan gets drawn into the meat grinder of US partisan politics, that would be a very, very bad thing for Taiwan. Uh, but for now, Taiwan has very strong bipartisan support, and that's connected to this meeting, and therefore the meeting was really important. One last thing on this. I felt that President Tsai had a very difficult decision as to whether or not to welcome McCarthy, invite McCarthy to Taiwan to meet in Taiwan rather than the United States. Given the reaction to the Pelosi visit, naturally, there was many people who thought that things should be dialed down, that it just wasn't necessary. It was overly provocative. But by allowing China to dictate who Taiwan can meet on Taiwanese soil, that diminishes Taiwanese sovereignty. And I think Tsai must have felt that this was a tough call. And she eventually decided that 
dialing things down and appearing responsible on the world stage was more important than this obvious infringement of Taiwanese sovereignty. Uh, I think it was a tough one, but I think she might have made the right call. I agree. It was the. I think it's the right call too, because uh, if an incident happened while McCarthy visited, or if McCarthy backed down, either way, it would not have looked good. And we knew the. Re- we know the result. Uh, Pelosi, they, China would have, you know, uh, uh, you know, blamed McCarthy for anything that happened. And to be to be the sad, honest truth is, there's quite a lot of media in the world that would have also blamed McCarthy, just like they blamed Pelosi for China being aggressive, just for visiting. Taiwan. And they would have blamed Taiwan, too. Oh, yeah, they always do. And so we've had the top foreign relations story of this year. Now, Sean, how about the biggest cross-strait story of 2023? Oh, it happened roughly around the same time, which was when Ma visited Hunan. Well, President, just a recap for those who may have missed this exciting episode. Uh, President Ma's, uh, ex-President Ma's ancestral home is in uh, Hunan, China. Uh, which is in more or less the southern part of China. And he went to pay a visit to his ancestor home and visited the graves of the Ma family. Now, Ma himself was born in Hong Kong. uh, And as far as I know, this is the first time he had ever gone to Hunan himself. Uh, But it was very symbolic and is related to the longer-term story of... of, uh, people who were refugees in Taiwan in 1949, going back and reconnecting with their roots. I remember it was a long 12-day visit that just capped around, and I think there was... I, I don't remember recall exactly, but it felt like there was an extension just to make sure it could tone down uh, Tai's visit to the United States. Like, I'll stay longer so I could be in the news more. Uh, I felt like it was, was what was happening. But, of course, there was always controversy when Ma visits uh, China. Or, actually, he's just he just says a lot of controversial things. Like, uh, he says, we are all Chinese. And, of course, you know, the DPP got really mad. And, and it, it's it's... It's not acknowledging the reality because as of last year, uh, more than 60% of people in Taiwan responded that they felt they're identified as Taiwanese. Um, And the numbers of those that identify as Chinese only has been, you know, dropping down to single digits. So I think Ma doesn't really care about the domestic audience in Taiwan too much in terms when he says statements like that. Uh, Otherwise, I don't remember the visit being too eventful uh, because the reason is other than visiting you know uh, uh, you know his ancestors so to speak and so on uh, and most importantly him bringing some students to uh, China but this happens a lot uh, there wasn't really much except for him just saying like, okay, um, you know, this is important. China's our main thing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do feel there was a lot of talk about it, but has anything tangibly changed? Not really. Did Ma prove that he is still very good at getting the highlight among the KMT or, or you know, getting the headlines? Yeah, Ma's still at it and he's still good at it. Better than I think almost anyone else in the KMT. And Michael, I mean, obviously Ma grabbed, I would have to say that this trip to China by Ma, it grabbed a couple of headlines, but for the most part, media here in Taiwan was a bit muted about it. There was certainly a reasonable amount of coverage. I think it probably wasn't very exciting for them because it was, of course, very choreographed. 
uh, the, the choreography was very well planned by China and the Ma administration. So there weren't too many surprises. There, there was one incident I think where a where a, one of the Ma's entourage uh, said something about the Republic of China or something like that. But uh, in general, it wasn't that uh, exciting. But it's it's what it's really about is. Um, there's a story I translated a few years ago about the transition from Qing rule to Japanese rule. And the author talks about how what happened in Taiwan is that the Taiwanese gaze shifted from looking westward towards China to the north, to the new colonial masters. And now we kind of have a split personality because on the one hand, Many people in Taiwan are looking east to the United States, but Ma is insistently trying to turn our gaze back to the West and China. So it's, it's you know, wh- who should we be paying more attention to? And, and Ma was certainly making a play for, we've got to deal with China because it's right next to us, and I'm the statesman who's done more than anybody else, and hey, remember me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely harkens back to, uh, I think, what was it, the 2015 uh, meeting where Ma went to visit, uh, well, meet with Xi Jinping in Singapore. Again, that was kind of panned in the meeting. Closely watched. That's what he's good at. But tangibly quite panned because there wasn't anything really tangible there. But yes, I guess Ma does win the, the, the I don't know, hat, you can say, when it comes to I can visit China and it'll be on the news. News, but does it really mean that did it result in China, you know, uh, uh, being less aggressive, doing less uh, uh, military flights past the median line across the straits? No, not really. And did it mean that China didn't still try to use economic coercion, including recently uh, basically putting a, a pause on ECFA? Uh, the trade agreement that stems from 2010? No, it did Well, but, but it, is, it is useful for Ma and the KMT because what they're trying, their pitch to Taiwan's voters is we're the only ones who can talk to China. So you're, you're right that, that it didn't stop the military intrusions. It didn't stop economic coercion, but it did produce calibrations to these things. I mean, I think we have to admit that in recent months, uh, Chinese, the number of planes and, and Navy, uh, naval vessels that are entering you know, ta- the area around Taiwan has come down somewhat, and there hasn't been anything massive. And at the same time, we have those ECFA sanctions that just kicked in on some petrochemical products at the end of the year, yet you constantly have local KMT politicians going to China and getting certain producers of group of fish to be able to export to China or certain kinds of fruit to be exported from Taidong. Uh, so it does buttress the case that the KMT and local KMT politicians are able to deal concretely and effectively with China. And, of course, the top business story and economic-related story of this year, one of them was Ekfashon. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. As we alluded perfectly, there's the ECFA sanctions. Uh, personally, I feel that this is not necessarily a bad thing because um, China has been doing not just to Taiwan. Like, one problem with, with uh, media coverage uh, with China is that we tend to look at it on a per country basis. Uh, actually, Glazer was accused of doing this too,、uh, saying that you know, it would tamper tensions with China. But at the same time, when apparently there's been allegations that China was intruding into、uh, you know, neighboring nations, including Nepal,、uh, you know, being aggressive towards Vietnam, the Philippines, Philippines. Yeah, Japan, so forth. I mean, the list goes on and on. So this isn't just a Taiwan only thing. So I feel like EFA sanctions isn't just Taiwan being affected, it's showing the world that. China's becoming a very unreliable partner under Xi Jinping. That, due to politics or on whim, you know, just because people feel a certain way or, you know, a poll says this or that, China may react. And harm businesses that have invested considerably within that nation. So it makes China, in effect, actually kind of、uh, less of a popular destination. And indeed, we've seen、uh, many. Companies including Apple and,、uh, well, TSMC, well, not TSMC, but I'm thinking like Foxconn, even,、um, you know, expanding their factories in other countries dramatically. We're talking about some of their largest factories ever built are no longer in China. So these things,、uh, I think, has been a big business story, not only affecting Taiwan because of the end of ECFA, but also not the temporary pause of ECFA, but also、uh, its global image. But I also want to mention that the total merchandise exports to China, which benefited from ECFA, Only accounted for 5% of Taiwan's total exports. So it's not like ECFA was this huge thing that's like, you know, you know, that's, that's、uh, you know, devastating to Taiwan's economy. But it, is, it will affect certain companies and it will be very annoying. Will these companies tell their employees to vote a certain way or that it'll affect their bonuses, et cetera? It remains to be seen. But I think the bigger picture is a lot of companies are just saying secretly that, or quietly, that, yeah, it's time to divest from China. And Michael, of course, TSMC also made the news this year for possibly good things, but not some good things. Well, TSMC is, of course, Taiwan's pride and a remarkable global class company. It's doing something incredibly difficult for it, which is that it's trying to reproduce its business model with a $40 billion investment in Arizona to build a very controversial fab. And inevitably, it hasn't gone that well in 2023. There were all kinds of disputes with local labor, problems with construction, things were delayed, and then. To a lot of people's surprise, the chairman of TSMC, Mark Leo, just stepped down. And some people speculate that that had something to do with the Arizona plant not going as well. There have been problems with you know, getting the subsidies from the U.S. government. But it's an enormously difficult undertaking.、Uh, and I think it's far too early to tell whether it's going to be successful or not. It's really important to Taiwan, though. And that's why I think it should be in our stories, because Taiwanese companies. Have not really succeeded very well in going global in the past、um, in, in this kind of way. I mean, going into Europe or the United States.、Uh, many years ago, Acer tried to do this in the mobile phone business in Germany, and it was a disaster. And so it's important to Taiwan that Taiwan can. 
uh, invest in, successfully, and execute major projects in countries like the United States and not just countries like Vietnam uh, or China, for that matter. More importantly, though, just going back to what Sean was talking about, though, the ECFA is part of a trend that we're seeing increasingly over 2023 where the China, uh, Taiwan's economy is increasingly tilting towards Southeast Asia and the United States and away from 30 years of a tilt towards China. Less investment in China than in, uh, uh, than in Southeast Asia. Trade is increasing with the U.S. Trade with China is still super important and big, but it's not growing the way it used to be. And more and more Chinese, Taiwanese businesses and, and banks have less exposure to Taiwanese businesses in China. So that, that that's a major story, and the TSMC plant is part of that. There's a there's a shift in the weight of Taiwanese Taiwan's economy that's um, that that's going on. Oh, oh yeah, indeed. Uh, TSMC's uh, CFO uh, Wendell Huang said that construction costs in Arizona could be four or five times higher than in Taiwan. So uh, I feel like it's more like a backup plant for U.S. interests as opposed to actually a competing commercial plant. Uh, speaking of uh, Southeast Asia, Foxconn said that I think iPhone, the next iPhone, will actually produce just a few days or perhaps the same time as the, their factories in China. So this means that iPhone and similar products from other companies can actually produce faster, potentially, in just a year or two than, than you know, China is, which means this has been fast moving, uh, the divestment from China, so to speak. And But I mean, back to TSMC, yeah, there's also other problems. They, they the, the, the Taiwan has a whole entire infrastructure where universities train specific personnel to work at TSMC to man those factories in those 12-hour shifts. Well, because they're chip fabs, right? But in the United States, uh, if you're, you're having this choice as a student, why would you want to be a chip engineer, make maybe half or two-thirds what you could as a software dev. And you'll have 12-hour shifts as opposed to working from nine to five with benefits and so forth. So from a job perspective, it's not very attractive. And it's practically just as difficult too. So you're asking for lower income, longer hours for this kind of thing? Yeah, it doesn't seem possible. There are lots of skeptics. But other countries have done this. Japan, Germany have all successfully manufactured in the U.S. And Taiwan can do it. And I, what I'm seeing is, is that, yes, I agree that, that, that this was not purely a commercial decision. But if you're going to be involved in producing you know, a, a product with geopolitical strategic implications, you're going to have to be ready for being in the big time. And that's what's happening with TSMC. And I, I think they're meeting those challenges, but there are many and, and they have to rethink their business and working model, which is a very hard thing to do. But if any company in Taiwan can do it, it's TSMC. And Michael, what was your top social or society related story of the year? For me, it was an episode that may not have attracted so much attention, but the uh, emergence of first online and then very small on-street protests against Taiwan's plans to make India a new source of migrant labor. Uh, I think over the long term, uh, immigration to Taiwan, there are more than... 2 million, closer to 2.5 million 
immigrants of various kinds living in Taiwan already, including over 850,000 migrant workers, if you include the ones who have left their jobs, which I think you should. And we're looking at another 100,000 eventually, eventually coming to Taiwan from India. It's, it's a big deal. And for the first time, we saw uh, people online saying, what's going on here? And, and expressing, you know, some racist sentiments and I think genuine concerns, too. And then they actually did come out, and they were very young people who were doing this. And and the reason I think this is so significant is that this is how right-wing movements begin. It's moments like this. And there were lots of statements of the demonstration, like, you know, Taiwan is uh, for Taiwanese people and and this sort of thing, which, which of course, is all true. Uh, but but who is Taiwanese and how open is that identity is a, is a huge issue. And all that was called into question by those events. And uh, that's why I felt that it was such a significant story. Oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, a lot of demographics changes or potential demographics changes really brings out a lot of racism in people, uh, you know, no matter what country you're talking about, because people fear that the status quo is being changed or what they expected in the future is being changed. I do feel, though, that um, Taiwan has been making some shifts regarding labor shortages, for example, trying to get more intermediate skilled workers, which is all important because, again, we have a lot of migrant workers, but making giving them a pathway to naturalize, um, giving them a pathway to expand. And having Taiwan expand into this front is actually really important for our economy. Because if you go down south and you check all the factory districts, it's not Taiwanese people manning most of these factories. It's migrant workers. And without them, our country could not really survive. They're also, so far, the the stopgap solution for our elderly population. So I feel that we need to do a cultural shift and respect these migrant workers because they are hardworking. They, they, they feel, it feels like they have less labor rights. The brokerage system uh, that's been off talked about this year is, is not working, you know, for them either. So they go through tremendous pains to choose Taiwan to assist Taiwan, when, to be frank, there are many other countries that are far better at this than we are. South Korea, I would say, argue, is probably a better destination, even Hong Kong, maybe, Singapore. So uh, I'm very thankful that we have these, um, you know, migrant workers that have chosen to help us in Taiwan. But I think I might have had a slightly different story that's sort of related because it's the disinformation regarding this um, because the disinformation that they came out about uh, you know arguing that hey um, it's going to be 200,000 I saw on the internet or they said oh they're going to be coming in next month and, and, and this information has been used I think more by other uh, well you know China and other potentially other countries but I think mainly China has been used to really try to build a rift in society. The racism that we saw among some of the youth and among older people regarding these migrant workers and potential immigrants um, that, again, bring huge benefits to Taiwan. I saw them spread online. I saw them on D-card. Sometimes you'll see them accidentally use a Chinese phrase that isn't really used in Taiwan much. Uh, Some of them accidentally use simplified. Um, it, It just kind of you know, tells you right off the bat that, yeah, there's people out there sowing chaos and using false information, telling people there's going to be cuts to benefits. It's, you know, incomes are going to be reduced. Um, There's going to be, oh, so much power outages, you know, Um, even, you know, blaming, you know, 
power plants, even though it wasn't literally a power shortage, it was just grid problems. Quite many of them actually timed. Uh, they were saying, Taiwan's democracy is chaos, because look at this, all these migrant workers are going to be poured in. They don't care about you, they care about the businesses. Um, it's complicated. But the I've seen so much disinformation being spread, and it's notos- notable to say that about a recent poll in May said that about 48% of Taiwanese believe they fact-check information on media. But other polls around the world suggest that their capability of fact-checking is very bad. A lot of people actually think, oh, I saw it on a line group. That's me fact-checking. Or I saw it on Facebook. That's me fact-checking. If only half the people who spread this misinformation actually fact-checked, it would be a lot better for Taiwan. I would back that up, Sean, that, that I the I looked very carefully at what happened both in the real world and online in that Indian migrant story, and I remain confused about what happened. The demonstrators who came out appeared to me to be young people uh, there in good faith trying to discuss serious policy issues, although there was an undercurrent of unpleasant attention to the idea that um, that that Indian migrants would cause crime in Taiwan when the crime rate for migrant workers is much lower than the crime rate among ordinary Taiwanese people, as it's often the case all over the world. Uh, but then online, there was some very ugly stuff. Uh, the, the, the demonstrators were really upset because the Minister of Labor had said they'd been there had been disinformation and they were understandably, you know, like any victim of a fraud, you can be very resentful and angry. You know, I, I wasn't so stupid that I got tricked. And then they and I think they were there in good faith and they, they were upset uh, that their government had labeled them. And they felt that they didn't have a platform to register their dissent about this policy. Uh, That said, you know, some people thought that maybe the purpose of any disinformation campaign was to rupture relations with Taiwan and India, which may be true because this news got back to India and was covered in the Indian press. And it was a big deal. But uh, I think more importantly, it's to create it's enough just to create dissension and conflict within a society and that may be what happened it's still not clear to me and that's what's so disturbing about this kind of thing you don't know what happened anybody can post online anonymously i'd like to also bring up another one that was sort of related uh cna uh, mentioned that their second top story was me too and although i'm not a woman so i feel like i won't cover i I don't have the right to cover this too much but yeah there were over a hundred public accusations of sexual violence reported in a month uh which i thought was a great thing in the sense that At least this was out in the open. Uh, Another thing was the maximum jail term for sexual harassment was increased from two to three years, and the top fine was doubled to one million NT. Uh, I think legal changes are helpful. We are going in the right direction, but you know, having society-wide discussion on gender norms and sexual harassment is a really important sexual uh, 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 cultural shift for us to, for Taiwan to go to. So uh, I actually thought that was one of my top uh, societal stories as well. 
all. And I watched it just like everyone else did closely. And let's hope our political parties in Taiwan can do more to ensure that this doesn't happen as much within, because there was a lot of unfortunate repercussions, including, uh, you know, suicides and what have you, because um, the victims were not being attended to. And it should also be noted that it wasn't just women uh, giving allegations of sexual harassment. There were also some men, too. So uh, this is something that affects all of our society, not just half of it. And before we go this week, well, we're going to look at the best feel-good story of 2023. And I see one of my guests has chosen Leather Jacket Man, or Jensen Huang, as he's also known. Oh, yes. Jensen Huang of the incredibly successful chip company, NVIDIA, uh, is a Taiwanese immigrant to the United States. I believe he was born in Taiwan, but but relative, at a relatively young age, emigrated to the U.S. and and he's not quite Elon Musk, but he's up in the forty fifty billion dollar rank. And and certainly Taiwanese feel very proud of him. His chips are super important in AI, and and they're all being manufactured in Taiwan. So there's a real connection. He gave a commencement address at National Taiwan University. In English, and I think there was a real palpable sense of excitement, and you know what Taiwanese people can do and succeed at in the wider world that was just in the air there. Uh, and and he gave a great speech about you know going out there and trying new things and be, not being afraid to fail. And I, I think it was very inspiring and and. Uh, Clearly, though, all those young students were inspired by it, and, and it, it felt good. Oh, yeah, indeed. And he also pushed uh, artificial intelligence as something a lot of people can, a lot of uh, uh, NTU graduates should definitely pursue. But the thing that stru uh, struck me the most was I saw a picture of him at a night market in Taiwan in May. Just This is before Computex. And he's wearing his leather jacket in this hot, humid weather at a night market. And... You know, I, I wonder if he ever takes that jacket off or, you know, does it hide something beneath him? Has he turned AI, into half air conditioning inside? Or, or maybe he's half robot if you, you know. <laughs> of course, it did, it did. People actually went and found out how much this leather jacket cost. Oh, really? You are aware how much this leather jacket cost, aren't you? Uh, two TSMC factories? <laughs> Not quite that much, but let's just say several thousand US dollars. This is understated. Uh, I heard the same thing about, uh, what would you call it, Steve Jobs' uh, uh, turtlenecks were apparently far more expensive than they looked. And of course, Mark Zuckerberg's hoodie is also infamously expensive too. Understated wealth. But actually, I think Jensen Wong's leather jacket's the coolest of those three. Oh, yeah, definitely. By far, by far. Anyway, Sean, apparently for your feel-good story, you picked the Asian Games, you being such a sporty bloke. Well, actually, uh, I don't know anything about sports, really. But I also, but what I really loved behind it was the amount that Taiwan's actually investing into uh, sport initiatives, into dramas, into building up our soft power and these are some of the, the the fruits of it so i mean if you ask me about football well all i can tell you is i don't know anything about hockey and ice skating but what i could tell you is that um taiwan spending millions of dollars in order to boost uh, uh everything from the sports industry to the creative sector um is a good thing because investing in people is how we grow stronger as a country so it made me feel good watching us win so many uh, uh medals and what have you uh, during these games. 19 gold, 12, 20 silver and 28 bronze. Oh yeah, definitely. 
He didn't make you want to take up steeplechase, Sean. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. There we go. Anyway, that's when I have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Michael Fahey. Take care, all. And by Sean Sue. Have a happy new year. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.